You're listening to Reach Teach Talk with Nat Ding. Welcome back to Reach, Teach, Talk. Uh, I'm Nat Damon, and we are talking today about the power of belief in teaching and learning. And it's funny because whenever I talk with student groups about, you know, who's your most memorable teacher and why, and it's, it's always, you know, they, they, they come up with the, the funny one or the happy one or the one who's really nice and, and probably, you know, maybe on the easier side when it comes to, uh, you know, grading and whatnot. But then there's always that student who's like, you know, actually, the one, the most memorable teacher for me is actually, you know, Miss Smith, who's my AP bio teacher, and she is just so hard and so strict, but there's something about her that just makes me want to work for her. And then, you know, a couple of kids will start nodding, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, Miss Smith, that's right. Yeah, she's, you know, she is really hard, but I, I want to work for her, too. And, I, and then it comes this idea of what is it that Miss Smith presents that makes her memorable, meaningful, even though she really pulls a lot out from her students. And it, we, we settle on the fact that it's because Miss Smith believes in me. She, she finds a way to challenge me in a way that makes me not want to run away from the challenge, but instead I want to lean in and I want to work harder. And, and it all has to do with belief. She makes me feel, these are students talking here, she makes me feel like I can do this work. And, that, and even to the degree that I wouldn't be assigned this work or expected to do this work if Miss Smith did not believe that I could do it. So that's the topic of our conversation today. And I'm really thrilled to have Brian Wilkinson here. He is a 20-year teacher at the Archer School for Girls here in Los Angeles. And actually, Brian, welcome, first of all, to the show. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And, uh, you know, Brian has a very interesting kind of origin story about what brought him to Archer, which actually takes us 6,000 miles away into uh, the, the green hills of Italy. Of, of Is it Umbria or was it Tuscany? Tuscany. It was in Tuscany. Outside of Siena. Okay, yeah. even more ridiculously gorgeous. <laughs> Outside of Siena. Like, you can't get more bucolic than that. Um, but... Uh, I want, us, I want us to kind of start there because you lived in um, outside of Siena for a couple of years before you became a teacher for the past 20 years. And you were doing something very different, but very re relevant to what we're talking about today when it comes to belief. So what were you doing in Italy and what, what brought you there and what, um, yeah, what was your focus for those two years? Well, I had been uh, in graduate school in Boston and I had done a year and I went to a writing conference in Europe. A friend of mine said, hey, come to Italy. You can spend the rest of the summer here. And it was incredible. And I got offered this opportunity to do an apprenticeship with this old guy that I had met there. Um, his name was Silvano. He was a stonemason. And it didn't take me long to call up my professors at my graduate program and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to take a leave of absence. And um, so it ended up being a two-year leave of absence. And I did this uh, apprenticeship with um, with this guy, and it was uh, it was remarkable and frustrating at first. Uh, we had a language, you know, barrier. Obviously, I didn't know Italian. Um, I thought I was learning some Italian from him, but after a couple of weeks, I realized he was trying to speak English to me. <laughs> <laughs> but once we got over that, uh, you know, I started to learn, and uh, and I actually think the language barrier was interesting in terms of how I was learning, because I had to kind of dampen my focus on what he was saying and really focus on um, what he was doing, right? And which is one of the things that he wanted me to really do at the beginning was just to do a lot of observation. Um, 
I think that would have been um, that would have really kind of got on my nerves and been and kind of been um, difficult for me if it wasn't for the fact that he also made sure that every job we were doing, I had some piece of it that was mine, right? That was um, doable, that I had learned some of these skills and I could apply them at this little piece of the job. Um, and I was a part of it, right? I knew that we were building this wall and this little section of it was mine. You know, I remember like a year later walking through with my parents came to visit me. I said, I, I built that little piece right there and I did that stair there. You know, I kind of walked through my apprenticeship with them. Uh, but that was a big part of that uh, relationship that we had was him kind of um, bringing me along by allowing me to take part in what he was doing, but in a kind of controlled way. I wasn't going to screw up what, what he was doing. Silvano is his name. Yes. And can you can you give a little character uh, characterization of him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, he was kind of an incredible guy. I actually just saw him. Uh, I've been back a number of times, and I just saw him last summer. And he's still the same. He's just very gregarious. Um, you know, six foot four, big guy who's um, his father was a stonemason. I think his grandfather was a stonemason, and his son. Um, went to law school. And so he was kind of looking for someone, right, to to work with him to pass on this stuff. And I, I kind of did the bill for a while. Um, he loved food. He loved wine. His his wife would make him uh, drink mezzo-mezzo wine at lunch. So he, she would pack a, a bottle, a liter of wine that was mixed half and half with water. And I, I, of course, was bringing my own it's wine. It's a communion wine. Yeah. <laughs> but he would always, you know, as, you know, the hierarchy went, he would kind of take my wine and make me drink the mezzo. Oh. <laughs> so he doubled down. Right. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> he gave hey, you the give, give, me, give me that here. <laughs> right, right. He right. was also just an incredible, uh, yeah, like his his ability to... Um, Take the Lord's name in vain was kind of incredible too. Like, yeah, like a hundred different ways these to curse. Strings of like like Madonna Maiale, Assassina, Strega Botan. You know, it would just go on and on. Like that was a. Very but it sounds brief. so beautiful. But it's it, the most crude. But it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you got to love Italian for that. Yeah. So he was he was pretty incredible. He, so when, when you okay, so you were in a grad program in Boston for what? What was the? Uh, I was doing a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Okay, at, beautiful at, at Emerson. Yeah, beautiful and a great program. Yeah. Um, but you left it. And you left it not knowing you were going to be learning and being an apprentice for stonemasonry for two years, but you knew that you wanted to live in, in Italy and in, in a totally different environment than exactly. Boston. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. And then you met Silvano, and he, the way you describe him, he is a gregarious figure, and he's you know large and you know kind of a larger-than-life person. But he also took you through the steps of learning how to shape, shape, shape stone into functional walls as you were describing that example and but but what's interesting to me is it, a couple of things about the way that you describe how he approached you um and approached the, the learning model because you you didn't you had you had a language barrier um you know as you say like he was kind of trying to speak uh, as much english as he could and you were trying to learn italian as best as you could from him from his broken english and but despite the language barrier you found a connection to him and you were building a relationship with him and there's so much that is behind that, I think, when we think about teachers in the classroom and the teacher-student relationship, because a teacher can give heap tons of praise, verbal praise on a student, but that student might or might not receive it because that student might not believe it. 
that mm-hmm. student might, might think those words are empty. Um, same thing with, you know, the opposite, right? Criticism. So how did Silvano communicate to you in a way that made you feel like you were making steps and progress and also learning the art of stonemasonry without knowing the language so well for you? Is, is there something you can speak about with that? Yeah. I mean, one of the things certainly was if I had done something that um, wasn't up to par, that wasn't working, that, you know, my skills just hadn't been there yet and I had been trying something, um, he was pretty uh, abrupt about, you know, saying, nope, that's not it. And he would tear it down. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a sandcastle. And, and it was very, you know, it was very <laughs> Uh, clear when when you're trying to you're building something and then he comes along and says nope we're gonna unbuild that um, but I I always knew the stakes right I knew that this was a job that he you know he needed to complete this to a, a level of proficiency and excellence in his in his mind and so I knew that you know wh- when I did do something that was that remained that was up to par that really gave me an incredible sense of satisfaction. Right. Um, because I knew the difference between when I had failed something, when I had succeeded. So he actually um, I think one thing I learned from him is that failure in the process of learning was actually really helpful. Um, and um, that's a, that's a tough lesson for students. Right. Especially in our culture, um, in our society. And, and, you know, where I teach with um, with girls who are prone to a kind of a sense of perfectionism, um, the idea of failure is really difficult. So that experience was really good for me in that. And I try to certainly kind of carry that with me. And you, you would still get the Mesometsa wine, uh, regardless of whether he, <laughs> yeah. knocked, he kicked, he kicked he, regardless of whether he kicked over your sandbox or not, right? So there's That's that true. consistency regardless. Yeah. Um, so if you failed or if you didn't do the work the way that to his excellent standards, it wasn't like he was going to withhold, which gets me thinking about teaching because um, it's a great analogy you made there, Ryan, because positive reinforcement versus negative withdrawal, right? And, sure. and this idea of how we as teachers can um, communicate when a student did not hit the mark at all in a very clear way, in a transparent way, um, but also not have it be this uh, imposing scarcity on the student or withdrawing something. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I also think it's, like, for me, it's um, framing, you know, how I'm talking about, say, a failure or talking about uh, or giving feedback that, is honest and clear, framing that from the very beginning of our experience together, you know, with the class and with students individually, um, and framing it in, in articulating my um, goals for them and my hopes and aspirations and being as genuine and authentic as I can with that. And then in the same breath saying, and I'm going to be telling you some things that are um, going to be critical. You know that are, I'm going to critique and give you um, a sense of where your your skills are lacking, where you need to build. Um, so I think that framing is really important. Um, the The other thing is that the the way that um, I try to develop feedback in terms of um, you know a student's finding areas where they're where they need to work. Let's say it's what they're writing. Mm-hmm. I try to find ways to have that be a collaborative process. So the students are part of that. Um, they're, you know, so that I ask a lot of questions of them and get them to kind of 
analyze and reflect on their own skills and where their skills are lacking. And oftentimes they're, you know, they're recognizing things once they're drawn to it that um, I would have been telling them as well, but they're, they're finding it themselves too. So I think that kind of um, relationship that happens in feedback um, and that collaboration um, between an, you know, a mentor and apprentice um, that develops like that is, is really crucial. I, I love this idea of the questions you ask and the fact that you make it a collaborative process. There's, there's you, there's the student, there's the mentor, there's the apprentice. It's one-on-one, one with one. And what you're doing, and, I, and if what 15, 16, 17-year-old doesn't want to feel um, like they matter and that they are seen and heard um, and ultimately trusted? And your questions are, are ways to, that communicate to the student that you are interesting to me, your thoughts um, can sometimes confuse me, <laughs> and this is <laughs> and so I have some questions about them. Um, your, you know, your thesis here uh, being being the defense you use for your thesis, uh, passages from the book, whatever we're discussing in your essay are not as clear. And let's let's I got some questions about that, <clears throat> but I'm taking my time to ask these questions. And I, the way that I'm visualizing visualizing in my head as you were talking about that, Brian, is um, just these threads of connection between question and uh, student's answer, question, student's answer, question, student's answer, that over time build a trust bridge between a teacher and a student. So it's funny because one thinks, when they think about critique or feedback from a teacher, especially one like on an essay, it's it, which is interesting because a teacher matters, like who the teacher is when they're grading an essay, because it's, it's hard to be totally objective um, when you're grading an essay versus when you're um, correcting a math test or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the conversation that can happen is absolutely something that is about sharing um, impressions, sharing thoughts, sharing questions that that can lead to a closer bond between uh, the teacher and the student. So I just love how you're making that connection between, like, I'm not sure if Silvano with his language barrier was able to ask you specific questions about how you sculpted that stone, yet it sounds like the attention he gave to your work mattered. And that makes me think about the attention you give to your students' work, the time that you would take, you know, come meet with me and let's talk about this essay together, is a way of communicating that their work matters. Does that all make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, I think the other piece of it is that when you when you're asking questions, what you're opening up is an opportunity to listen. And I think a student who recognizes that someone is listening to them, is, is hearing them, um, that develops the trust more than, more than almost anything, right? They, they know that they have, they have the, the floor. They're able to express their thoughts, their ideas, respond to these questions. And so I, I, you know, over my years as a teacher, I've become more and more uh, evident to, that it's become more and more evident to me that listening is really probably my most important skill. And you know, I used to be, um, you know, if I think back in my first like five years teaching, um, I used to think of uh, my curriculum as a kind of and my my role as a teacher. Um, you know, I, I understood that I wanted there to be a student-centered classroom, but I was still a focal point in a way that I'm not now. 
And I thought saw my curriculum as almost like a, an adventure for the students. And I would have these little kind of things that would pop up and they would surprise them and they would recognize them, whether it's like something really small, like we were working on this this voca vocab list. And then a month later, they're reading a, a, an essay by someone and one of the vocab kind of is in that essay. And they're like, oh, this is the word that we're, right? So these little like, you know, Easter Seeds. eggs and yes. things, right? And and that's great. And I still like, I love that aspect, but it has really, I've really learned that the more I can step back my sense of being the kind of conductor like that or the orchestrator and give them more opportunity to be kind of co-orchestrators and to, to listen more has been important. And you know what else? I used to tell um, a lot more stories in the classroom, which I think is, um, I mean, you can challenge me on this, but I think like telling stories is if you're teaching a humanities course, which is really about storytelling and about how we learn and gain empathy and perspective from stories. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important, it's crucial, but I used to, it used to be my voice a lot more and I would tell these stories and I think the, the girls really were interested in that and they got to know me and understand me through my stories. But I realized that that's one way, that's like one-sided, right? I, I would say the biggest change that I've made in terms of my students gaining a sense of comfort, understanding, empathy, and belief in the classroom has been taking counsel. Um, so I did counsel training in Ojai, um, at the Ojai Foundation like 15 years ago. And I was a class dean for a number of years, for seven years with the senior class primarily. And I would use counsel with the class. Um, and sorry, when yeah. you say use counsel, just for anybody who's listening or for watching, sure. yeah. I, my I think about a talking stick. I think about yeah. So, and I don't mean to simplify it by that, but can you maybe give a nutshell sure. of what counsel yeah. is? So, I mean, it's there's different program. forms of it, and you're going to get you know different perspectives on what um, how to kind of define it. But um, for me, from my perspective, it's um, it in a in a um, kind of generalized way, it's it's a form of communication where you have a talking piece, and you have a specific intention, um, and that can be a prompt or a question. Um, and it's usually so, uh, formed in a way to ask someone to tell a story about X, right? Although I've definitely done modifications with that. Um, and I, more than anything else, it's a listening exercise because whoever has a talking piece is speaking and everyone else is listening. Let's say you have 30 people, which is a big number for a council, and there are kind of ways to modify how that happens. But as the piece goes around, you know, you have your opportunity to speak. But, you know... The goal is to, is to be open to listening rather than thinking about, oh, what am I going to say to this, right? So it's about being in the moment. It's about listening. But I did that, and we do that in our human development course, but I think we kind of silo some of these things and kind of I recognized, wow, why don't I bring counsel into my classroom and actually into my curriculum in a way that um, there's more storytelling. And so every last period of every rotation, so once every seven days, we spend the whole period doing a council and sometimes that's about the text we're reading we do handmaid's tale right now you know yesterday i did a council on on handmaid's tale where you know the, the prompt was something that resonated with the themes that we've been talking about in this book but other times they come up with the, the prompt themselves but what it is is they have an opportunity to learn about each other and i get an opportunity to learn about them you know what's 
what's a place in your life that is a sanctuary for you, a place where you feel the most you, right? And tell a story about that place. And if you can imagine like 18, you know, students each kind of conveying that and being inspired by the story you just heard to talk about your story. And they know that I've heard all those things and they've heard me give my response to that too. It just develops a kind of trust and empathy. Um, so that idea of, um, of listening more in the classroom to your students um, in terms of giving them a sense of believing that they're in a place of, um, of comfort where they have agency um, and where they can um, feel uh, like they can engage, right? And do that um, in a place that's authentic. So often the classroom feels frenetic, right? Um, right. And this is a, and it's so interesting to hear <clears throat> to hear about this council approach as a way of deliberately kind of pushing the train back, you know, or just holding back this impulse that we have, particularly as teachers in the classroom, to keep the pace going, to keep things exciting, to make sure the students are. There's, it's almost like there's two different ways of looking at the word engage, which is such an overused word in education. But I like that it's overused because it's an important word. Yeah, um, engagement, but. There's, it's like there's two different ways of looking at engagement. One is um, song and dance, story-driven, um, teacher as a charismatic, you know, keep it, keep everything alive. Like, keep everything right. sparking, spark, 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 spark. And I can totally relate to how that, as a younger teacher, an earlier teacher, that's like, ah, oh, that's appealing. And that's, you get a lot of, you get a bit of a high off of that when right, the classroom is sure. sparking and fizzing and everything. But then there's this other level of engagement, which is what you're absolutely talking about, which requires belief. And I was thinking about this as you were talking, describing it, because... The, this other deeper, I think, engagement um, is one that is based on we've shaped the way that the, that that this classroom is going to um, to behave, uh, for lack of a better word. We are going to listen when somebody is talking and telling their story they've thought about and making relevant to this part of the hand, this theme in the Handmaid's Tale, for example, that you gave. Um, we anybody who talks is going to know that they are going to have the floor. And they will be listened to, and what they say will be believed unconditionally. But as a teacher, that level of engagement that you're building um, involves a sense of belief that silence is okay, mm-hmm. that ultimately there will be a gem that comes out of whatever you know Julia is, is saying here. Like I can imagine, Brian, there must be times where you know, say Julia is is sharing. And you're all listening because you have to. But as a teacher, you're like, I just wish we could. Oh my god! The fi- I want a follow up <laughs> question here. Can I just totally? I'm just, I just want to, ah because like, she's she's. No, you have to. You have restrained. to just sit with it. You, know? you have to sit with it, and all of this relates to you know. There's a mindfulness aspect of this. There's, and it's just such an interesting and very different way of looking at the role of a teacher. Because it's funny, Brian. You, you mentioned earlier, like I, you know, you. Like I used to be a conductor. Like I used to think that I was the conductor in the classroom, and and that I always looked at as like the 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 benchmark that you want to hit as a teacher. Like the idea of being the conductor, let the students play their instrument and and build harmony and have a beautiful you know symphony come out of this. But you're getting me to think about looking at the classroom in a very different way, which is not based on the belief that you know Julia can play the oboe and Sam can play the viola, viola and you know Ter- Terry can play the drums and have it be harmonic, but it's actually not about noise. It's about silence. And it's about trusting that silence and believing that the silence, the restraint, the intentionality that you build in your classroom today 
is going to um, produce some rich learning. Yeah, and also the silence breeds voice, right? And you know, I think as teachers, we're, our big demon is time, right? Wow. So I still find, you know, I still have this this tension with me where it's like, you know, I told them we're going to do a council here, but we're behind on this text, and I, you know, can I? Can we skip it or, you know, postpone or something like that? But I really trained myself to, like, um, recognize how valuable it is so that I kind of tamp that <laughs> those feelings down, but it's consistent. But what I meant by it, it creates voices is that um, I definitely have found that students, when I am in a more kind of traditional kind of discussion mode or we're, do, or we're doing seminar or they're doing small group work, the value of, of that listening that they've done in council really pays off because they're they're more open to releasing their thoughts to you know speaking without knowing exactly where the end of their thought is which is I think is really important um, discussion skill to not mm -hmm. kind of try to craft your thought and then kind of release it but mm -hmm. um, to have it be more organic and mm -hmm. that organic thing certainly happens and I see it every year as it kind of develops it there's a crescendo to it as as they become more comfortable with each other and as they learn about each other and um, believe that this is a space that's um, safe for them to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that um, the, uh, the other thing that um, you were just making me think about the, the notion of silence and, you know, at Archer we've done a lot of thinking about introverted students and reading the book quiet i don't know if you've read that susan can great yeah, book. it's a great book and I'm sorry it's 40 percent or something right 40 percent of people yeah. classify consider themselves introverts right, right? right. Yeah, at harvard business school 95 percent are extroverts right so it's like <laughs> hmm. but in the classroom you, can, you expect to have it more of that balanced shift there and and i think um one of the things that um for those students is to have belief in their teacher and kind of belief in themselves is that they recognize that, that someone is thinking about that, about that aspect of who they are. So doing silent discussions, um, doing things like counsel where, you know, I didn't mention this, one of the things with counsel is when the talking piece comes to you, you hold it for five seconds and then you just pass it on. There's no like requirement that you speak. Mm. Um, and the thing I love about kind of silent discussions using kind of digital discussion boards is it becomes a very rich kind of discussion that if you're an introvert, you're so much more apt to like, you have time. Sometimes it might go over the course of like three days and you can have time to think about something. You can comment on what someone else has said. And so, um, yeah, yeah you know, I just think having the kind of sensitivity to the who the kind of students that you have in your classroom is is important too and the different modes of interaction is really important for their comfort too absolutely and just speaking of those message boards and the the, the idea of a thread do you remember the first time when you were teaching that you the first time you used that that yeah. mode of, yeah. of and what was your kind of realization oh my god and when was it like it was probably 15 years ago or something it was a long time ago and you know what it was i uh, me and another teacher decided we were going to do, I'm trying to remember what text we were reading. Um, we were reading Huck Finn. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do a, a kind of inside-outside 
um, kind of Socratic seminar, meaning there were like eight students on the inner circle, and they were the ones who they had prepared you know, discussion questions. Well, the whole class had just prepared discussion questions, but they were the ones who were going to do the seminar. They were going to actually talk to each other and, and discuss the text, et cetera. And then there were, um, you know, six or eight students on the outer circle who were observing and watching. They couldn't speak, right? They couldn't speak. Yeah. But what we did, we talked about the digital discussion yeah. board, is we had created a web page that had, had links to discussion boards. And each of those people in the outer links, uh, in the outer circle, had a different role. It's kind of like how Harkness works. Yeah. Harkness you know? table. And so, you know, there were two girls that were on a joint discussion board, and they were just having their own conversation about what they were listening to. But they didn't have to, they could like stop listening and keep going on you know, their thread. And then another two who were just asking questions of the inner seminar and what was happening there. And then another one was just like a process kind of analyst who was just like <laughs> writing down on this discussion board like, this is so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and someone kind of gave a pause before they spoke. You know, all like the court reporter, right. whatever that yeah. word is. Yeah, yeah like the, the stenographer of that. Yeah, but also looking at kind of the dynamics, too. Ah, right? yeah, I would yeah. ask them to, like, don't just think about what they're saying. Like, right. what are the da- dynamics that are going yep. on? It got it got a little meta, which was yep. I loved. You know, mm-hmm. it's it was my first foray into kind of metacognition in the yeah. classroom, really, totally. um, which I think is a big part of belief, too, we could talk about, too. But, yeah, those that was my kind of the door to thinking about how, you know, students can have interactions that weren't our kind of typical traditional ways. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it is similar for me, too, just recognizing that, because for me, I always think about it as like seven out of 10 are pretty good about speaking in class or not good. It's not good versus bad, but their hands are up. And but then there's always like the three to five out of 10 that are, you know, quieter. And, you know, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, good reason for reading that book. Um, it is fascinating how when what you can what you can get from um, content wise out of students when they are have the time to think the time to just give space to shaping their thoughts and then you know sharing them in an online thread or you know yeah a, a, you call it silent discussion is that what you call it yeah like earlier? a silent discussion is yeah. what I because not just are they posting on a discussion board but then they are commenting on the post and someone is commenting on their comment so right. it becomes much more dynamic that right. way. Yeah, and that's why I, I think like I tend to scaffold things like a silent discussion or a journal and then a paired interaction. You know, those things happen in a lesson before we go to the full discussion. So yeah. it's another thing that lets them feel like, okay, I have some groundwork here that I can use in this discussion. Which is a great lesson too, by the way, about prep- preparing before the big yeah the big class yeah. discussion. Yeah. Like, you know, laying your groundwork. By the way, the I mean, I know you've had this experience, but um, oftentimes I'll have students pair up and talk about like a prompt or something or a question on the text. And um, that is one of my favorite sounds is you've got like 18 or 20 people or girls, right? And, and they're paired up, right? So you've got like nine or 10 pairs and they all just start talking to each other in a classroom. And it's like a cacophony, right? You know, and as a teacher, you're kind of going around and you're trying to listen or you sit down with one of the pairs and you can kind of just focus on them. But it's really loud. And, and there are times where I just take up my phone and I just record the sound of it. You, know, you can't discern anything, but it's just a beautiful sound. Because it's everyone. They're yes. all talking. Those yes. who are introverted, those who aren't. And it's, it's probably the most alive moment, right, in, yes. in a class. 
yeah one on one and and that that yeah absolutely that's incredible it's it's ironic cuz it's like you're you're splitting you're splitting them up mm-hmm. but the volume is exponentially louder yeah it's yeah. It's, it's amazing <clears throat> i want to get back to a point you made about me- the metacognitive view of mm. the classroom and how belief ties into that cuz you, you just dropped a line saying th- there's there's a connection between belief and metacognition i definitely think so i mean i think well first of all i think uh, belief requires some kind of sense of the why of what you're doing, right? For me to believe in what I'm doing, I need to know why I'm doing that. I need to ask that of myself, um, or have uh, you know have people help me reach an understanding about the why, um, the purpose and, behind it. Well, the purpose behind it, sure. Um, and how is it um, how is it important to me? How is it going to help me? How does it help me um, with uh, understanding who I am, well, in humanity, certainly, it's about understanding who I am or understand who you are. So um, relevance, too. So, and, and relevance is part of this, too, sure. Uh, and, and, but to get, you know, I think that's a huge part of it, right? Um, but with the metacognitive, bringing metacognition, like, overtly into a classroom, like, I think we, as teachers, have, um, we kind of, intuitively do it when we ask a student after they've written an essay, you know, will you reflect on that? Like write a reflection about how, what that experience was like. What was the process like? And that's certainly metacognition, right? Um, but I think there are ways to do it more um, more thoroughly and to have it be part of kind of the system, right, of your, of your classroom where students are asking themselves, you know, what was um, not just kind of what was that process like, but what was confusing to me in that? And how did I react to that? And I think the more that they're recognizing that questions like that and doing thinking like that, thinking about how they're thinking, um, the more they do that, I think the more they recognize that the, the actions that they're taking with you in that classroom have value, right? Because it's helping them understand who they are as learners, who are they, who they are as thinkers. Um, you know, I, I think we we often ask our students about like, um, what do you understand about this, right? Let's, 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 I'm going to assess your learning. I'm going to assess mm-hmm. what you understand. Right. But how often are we asking, what don't you understand, <laughs> or like, uh, or what are you, what's confusing to you about yeah, this, right? Yeah. What are your confusions? And yeah. let's sit with confusions. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think that's, that's definitely a challenge for me. Um, you know, I, I teach a senior honors course where I'm having them read like literary criticism. We're doing some literary theory and it's really, and there are times where I have to realize, okay, we're going to spend a whole classroom just talking about these two pages of what we read and what is completely opaque and confusing about this. Right. And. Um, and they really respond to that, right? Mm-hmm. They really, it's, the switch has gone off or mm-hmm. it's flipped from, oh, this teacher needs me to know this stuff to, mm-hmm. oh, this teacher understands that I don't know this stuff mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. this is confusing. And, you know, so now we're in this thing together. Yeah. Brian, it's beautiful because it is looking at, it's, it's, what you're doing is, I mean, this, the whole the whole focus of this podcast is about relationships and about reaching out and and how in order to truly teach um, whether you're in a classroom or the classroom of life, um, this idea of the reaching out and uh, building relationships being the foundation, right? 
you and Silvano uh, building a relationship, him reaching out to you, and we'll get back to him at the end here because I'm, I'm, there's there's a, there's another topic about him that I want to bring that that this discussion is brought to light. Sure. Yet the messiness of the human condition, um, this idea that we aren't perfect. There is um, there is a an ingredient though that we haven't touched on that factors into belief that is positivity, mm. optimism. And I think about this ingredient because um, I did a little research before you came in today, and I want to talk with some former students um, about you. Hmm. And if there's anything that came out, and, uh, well, I want, I want you to hear this. Uh, some teachers, this is a student who says this about you, some teachers tend to teach as if they're leading you down a path and that you'll discover something at the end that they already know. Mr. Roganson doesn't do that. He discovers along with you. Sometimes he doesn't even know what you'll find. That's exactly what you're talking about. I love about. that. Uh, right? Isn't that yeah. exactly what you're just saying a minute ago? Is, you know, we're here together here. This is not me challenging you as to what you don't know and how you need to know it. It's, we get these two dense pages that we have to, you know, use literary critique on. And it's going to be, let's go, let's go into the weeds together here on this and see what comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And then another one, just another one. Um, he listens, Mr. Wilkinson listens so carefully to his students that we feel heard, but also he gets us to see the good parts of our writing. Then we see our writing is better than we thought. We recognize the strengths that we didn't see before. And I would say as a result, also the students see themselves differently. Hmm. Positivity. I think there's, there's something about that transcends this whole topic about belief in the classroom. Wouldn't you agree that having a sense of optimism, a sense of there's goodness in this, in this work, in this student, in, in this, this world, thought, in this <laughs> yeah. world, yeah. Is, is, just as a final, is there anything you can say that, 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 that is kind of the, the attachment between positivity? And, and one thing is when it gets back to Silvano, I don't necessarily get the sense that it was because he was always positive and happy. There's a difference between what we're talking about and happiness, um, which might inform a bit of what you're about to say about the connection between positivity and belief. What do you, what do you, yeah, I mean, it, and I think that's a, a really important distinction that it's, it's not about being happy um, or being comfortable, right? Oh, um, yeah. I think positivity is, is about feeling um, like there's meaning to what you're doing and that there's, um, there's a kind of, mystery right to me positivity when i'm feeling the most positive and i think when my students are feeling the most positive is when there's uh, an unknown there's a mystery that they're seeking right so there's something drawing them forward like what that student said earlier yeah and that leading us you somewhere. know and it made me like a couple days ago um we were just really into the beginning of this text uh, of atwood's book and and we kind of you know the class ended. I said, okay, we got to stop. Um, you guys got to go. And one of the things that a bunch of them said, was, oh my God, like class is over. Like, that's amazing. How did that happen? And it's like, it's like my favorite thing in the world, right? Because it means that they were lost, yes. right? They were, they were, they were in the moment so much yeah. that they were, they had lost that attachment that we have to all the things that are kind of working on us and that are maybe going around in the back of your mind while you're trying to focus on what we're doing in this class or this moment. And, 
Um, so for me, positivity is, is about um, being eager for the unknown and the mystery. And um, it really touches me what that first student said, because that, you know, it makes me feel really good about the idea that, you know, I think a, a, when a teacher can be able to, to kind of withhold this need to kind of get to point B and then point C and then point D, but rather allow students the agency to start to, you know, move from A to B, but then Oof, we're at P, right? Because that's where she went. <laughs> and I was surprised by this and as I you all I've are. never been to P before, right? right? I've like never been, right? I mean, I've, right. or at least I've never gone from A to P. Right, right, right. right. And so um, that's, a, <laughs> totally. that's a, you know, that's a fantastic thing. And I think when students start to feel like that's a norm, right? It's like, then their belief in what they're doing is, is I think, um, really solidified. And yes. so it's about agency. Yeah. Um, it's about a positivity of, of the mystery that they can seek out. Um, yeah. Beautifully said. And um, in speaking of time, just kind of going by in a very nonlinear way, I feel like this conversation, which we have to stop uh, in just about a minute, ah. um, is just been phenomenal. Yeah, that was quick. It was very quick. <laughs> I agree. A good sign. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to uh, where we started from, which is this relationship that you had, this apprentice relationship with Silvano, and um, and just the idea that you did not go to, you know, the hills of Tuscany, knowing that you were going to be a stonemason, you were going to learn the art of stonemasonry for two years, and, and with this this gregarious uh, six foot four Italian uh, speaking um, man uh, as your mentor, and as we've had this conversation. Is there anything about your relationship with Silvano that actually attaches to what we've been talking about with your uh, relationship to your students? Yeah, I mean, a number of things. I think probably the, the first one that's come to my mind is he, once I, once I developed my abilities with Italian, um, it became very clear that he just loved telling stories, right? And, um, I, you know, it was, and he loved listening to them too. So he was very, you know, for someone who's lived his whole life in a small town in Rosia in, in Siena, the province of Siena, he was so eager to kind of learn about America and learn about, you know, my life. And, and so there was such a great exchange that was happening there. And I think that was, you know, that definitely has translated for me. Um, yeah. yeah. Belief in the form of being seen, being understood, being, being, re being, um, having your teacher, your mentor communicate to you that, you are somebody worthy of my curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and that, all of that together allowed me to recognize how much I love stone, how much I love working with it. And, you know, that fueled me. I went to Berkeley and worked as a stonemason for three years after that. I went back to school. <laughs> I finished the MFA. MFA. But then, you know, after I wrote my thesis, I worked for three years as a stonemason. So, you know, it, I don't know if I would have, been brought to that recognition of that this thing that was genuinely uh, uh, is re still a really important part of my life um, without having Silvano 
both treat me the way he did, interact with me the way he did, and apprentice me or mentor me the way that he did as well. Yeah. And I imagine that if, if he were here, he would acknowledge the important role that you might have played for him because, as you mentioned, that his son went to law school. And, and this is a family generational passing down of, of this art um, and, and skill and trade. Um, and you came in with this interest. And uh, in, in a sense, I, I, I imagine that might have come at a good time for him, just knowing that the generational passing down might be, you know, he might be thinking it was being about to be interrupted because, yeah. right, discontinued. Yeah. And here's this outsider reinforcing to him, yeah, this is, this, this, this is meaningful beyond me, beyond my family, beyond, you know, um, and, and there is something there in terms of I think about times where there's a poem or there's a, a book that's so personal to me and that I'm sharing with my students. And it, it's such a rewarding feeling when you know that, at least with some of them, it's that they're seeing what you see, mm -hmm. right, in, in the material and the literature and the poem. Yeah. And I think about um, when students come back, which I know you've had that experience too, you know, years later and oh, come gosh. to talk to you. It's such an incredible thing. Yeah. And I had the chance to go, I've been back to Italy a number of times and brought my wife and my son back a couple of years ago. Um, and we ate on this terrace and I was able to tell the story about, you know, about five years previous, I had gone back, you know, I'm teaching an archer already, but I had worked for three years as a Mason, you know, I'd kind of cut my teeth and I went back and Silvano and I kind of as peers built this beautiful terrace together, the two of us. I said, no, every time I go back. You were on the terrace? Um, we're two on years that ago? terrace. You were on the terrace with your wife yeah, and yeah, your yeah. son? Yeah. With Silvano having dinner. Oh my God. Yeah, it was great. And so um, definitely this, this circle kind of closed a little bit on that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And one last image that, that uh, you mentioned earlier was very much earlier was you, when you would walk down the, the wall with Silvano and um, you would proud, no, no, maybe it was with your dad. You, you, you were saying, I was walking along the wall and I was sh proudly showing off. I did that part. Yeah, I yeah. did that part, right? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking in my head, that's so like when you have a back to school night with parents and students are there, or, you know, look at this, look at, look up at the wall there. That's, that's my essay or right. Like, well, I'm yeah, I mean, this this. Gets, we didn't talk about this, but right. like the idea of like students presenting their work and, and kind of owning it and recognizing there's an authentic purpose for it. Like yes. that's, a, that's, that's what that makes me think about, right. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. seeing that piece of the stone. It's like them being able to kind of take pride in their work and share it. Like, so that's not kind of just this thing that just sits there. I'm so glad you brought that up because this is a perfect way to conclude the conversation is when the, when that student is presenting his work proudly, he is expressing his belief that maybe he learned some, there's some aspects, some belief in himself that he learned through working on this essay or this product time and again, um, that he worked really, really hard on. He's so proud to show it off. And there's also this this feeling of the belief from parents or whoever his audience is, um, you know, saying, "Hey, you did this!" Like, yeah, there's you know, value. There's value in this. And, and again, this is an extension. That essay, this section of the wall, this terrace is an extension of who you are. Yeah. I and I see you, and I hear you, and I believe in you. It's awesome, Brian. Thank you so so much. This yeah, has just been a wonderful been conversation, great. and uh, you've really really illuminated my thoughts about the role that belief plays in the classroom from, you know, 45 minutes ago to, to, to right now. It's, it's absolutely just, we've explored a lot. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you.